that. All right. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Philippians still, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, as we are going to get in touch with our feelings today, starting in verse 7. And you know me, I'm Mr. Touchy-feely when it comes to the emotions of things. Um, actually, we will, there is a lot, there is a lot, uh, but we don't get to it till verse 8. And it's unfortunate that some of the translations come across the way that they do, and I think they miss the point when they do that. As we look at verses 7 and 8, um, of course, we spent quite a bit of time in verse 6. He says, I am confident, I am persuaded of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And much of what we spent looking at in verse 6 centered on that day of Christ Jesus, what we look forward to in the, in the church age, what we look forward to in the body of Christ is the day of Christ Jesus. Not the day of the Lord, not the tribulation, not uh, the day of wrath or the day of judgment for Israel, but the day of Christ Jesus is the day of our glory, the day of our rescue, the day of our judgment seat of Christ, the rapture of the church and the glory to follow. And so there's many things with confidence that we can look forward to. And uh, that's the, uh, the aspect of it there that we spent so much time dealing with in verse 6. So he who began a good work in you will perfect it. And praise God for that. It goes on to say, for it is only right. And that link, we'll spend some time on that link. Uh, for it is only right or just or, or proper for me to think this way about you all. It's not feel, it's think. And it's one of the first, it's the first use of several thinking terms that are found here in the book of Philippians. Philippians is a thinking book where it commands us how to think and shows us that our thinking is molded after the pattern of Jesus Christ. It is only right for me to think this way about you all because I have you in my cardia, in my core, the innermost part of my being. And cardia, of course, is regularly translated heart. And I don't have any problem with the translation. The only problem is, of course, that the word heart in our day and age tends to signify uh, valentines, you know, uh, emotions, um, uh, romance, or, or a touchy-feely. And, and we want to be clear on this. The heart does feel. The heart does have emotions. But the heart also thinks. And that's key. Because you have a thinking heart and you have a feeling heart. And uh, we're going to study this. And we're going to see the order that this verse puts things in. And we're going to see the priorities. That thinking must control emotions, not the other way around. We want all of our feelings, all of our, our, our emotions to be shaped by biblical thinking. Because if we turn it around, if our thinking gets shaped by our feelings, we're in trouble. We're in a lot of trouble. That gets very manipulated, um, subject to manipulations. And so we're going to see how God designed the Word of God to shape our thinking. And we'll take it from there. All right. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to control our thinking, to open the eyes of our understanding, and to bless our study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, it is our blessing this morning to assemble together, and I want to thank you for the truth of your word, for the power of your word. And Father, here we are as fallen bodies in a fallen world, and yet while the outer man is decaying, the inner man 
is renewed day by day. Father, I thank you for the Word of God that does that renewal. I thank you for the shaping of our thinking that's transforming us into the image of Christ. And uh, thank you for the book of Philippians that lays these things out for us and makes clear how it is that you would have for us to think. So, Father, uh, humble us today to receive the Word implanted. If there's any uh, obstacles, any pride, any hindrances on our part that would uh, keep the Word of God from from being implanted, then uh, remove that, Father. The rocky ground, the stony ground, the thorny ground, whatever it might be, prepare the, the, the soil of our soul to, uh, in humility, receive this word implanted. I uh, thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as uh, we look at this, we left off with uh, point eight and spent a lot of our time dealing with that. And let me just zip on ahead here to point nine. Paul's thinking is righteous thinking. It's grounded in grace so that his feelings will then reflect the affection of Christ. And this is what I did. I took verses 7 and 8 and I rephrased it and I recast it into a summary thumbnail point. And that's what we have here in point 9, a summary of these two verses. That the thinking is righteous thinking. We'll discuss this. Uh, The aspect of dikaios. It is only right. Uh, it's the same dikaios that we have in 1 John 1 9. How many times do we use 1 John 1 9? Uh, when we confess our sins, or if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. That's dikaios, meaning that it is just, it is right, it, it conforms to the standard of righteousness. In fact, for God to not forgive you of your sins would be unrighteous because he's already judged those sins on Christ, on the cross. So when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the aspects of justice are are huge, dominant themes throughout Old Testament and New Testament alike. And we have it here. He says, it is just, it is right for me to think this way about you all. And so thinking is, is righteous thinking. It's in conformity to the absolute standard of righteousness. And in in some respects, I probably should just stop right there and preach that for a month because we live in a generation that has lost its way. We live totally in a a day and age where moral relativism, where postmodernism, where this this insanity of no absolutes has has triumphed. It's triumphed in our schools, it's triumphed in our media, it's triumphed in in so many realms of, of our culture that there are no absolutes. They militantly shake their fists and say there are no absolutes. Completely oblivious to the irony of that statement because they're making an absolute statement when they say that. And yet there they are. So there's no right and wrong. Because what's right for you and wrong for you, you know, that's for you. These other things, they're, they're perfectly fine for me. It's right for me. I'm good with it. And so they, and at that point, there is no standard because they, they don't want there to be a standard is what it comes down to. The carnality of fallen man does not want to be held accountable by the righteous God that, uh, that lays it out there and has laid it out there from eternity past. So there is an absolute standard, and the absolute standard of righteousness is God Himself. We want our thinking to be shaped by God's thinking. And, and, and if, we're, if we don't, then we're the ones that need the attitude adjustment. And that's why he wrote Philippians. It's all about the attitude adjustment. And we'll show you that, especially in chapter 2. All right. So it is only right for me to think this way about you all because I have you in my heart. And we'll discuss what happens when you put something in, in your heart. 
And how do you inject something into your heart anyway? And it's the core of your being, and it centers on your thinking. It centers on the totality of who you are at your very core. When uh, there's, there's at, at your very core, there's no lying to yourself. At your very core, there is the reality. And that's where the Word of God pierces. Ephesians, uh, Hebrews chapter 4. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a critical judge of, not the touchy-feelies, the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Word of God pierces to the thoughts and intents of the cardia. And at your core of who you are, that's, uh, that's what the Word of God is shaping. We'll make that clear as well as we work our way through these, these two verses. I have you in my heart since, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all fellowship partakers of grace with me. There's the grace. But it's grace that's not just a thing. It's not just something that we receive. It is grace that we live in, grace that we operate in, grace that we have fellowship in. It is a fellowship partnership there. The quinonia that we've uh, already covered earlier in, the ver- in verse 5. Remember that? In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. In that verse, we discuss the aspects of uh, fellowship participation. And so um, here's what we're going to deal with. Now, with all that thinking in verse 7, then we get to the emotions of verse 8. For God is my witness... God is called to martyreo, testify, in the martyrdom witnessing testimony. God is my witness, how I long for you all. Now that is emotional. Longing is emotional. And this is, again, reflected of the, of the thinking. I long for you all with the affection, the tender mercies, the the uh, splanknon, and we'll talk about splanknizomai and splanknon, and the way that the Greek uh, text here just richly explains the emotions. How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. We want to have the affection of Christ, the affection He had. His affection becomes our affection, so that it's not phony, that it's not artificial. The the, uh, application there. So a lot of work in front of us. First of all, let's start with the, uh, the link, the for, the explanation. The, um, and in, too often I think we gloss over it. There is a, a huge doctrine that, come, this, that we spent time with in verse 6 and now it carries across into verse 7 with this uh, conjunction, with this for or this since or this just as. So verse 7 begins with a kathos. K-A-T-H-O-S. And of all the particles it could have used, of all the conjunctions it could have used, it uses the kathos, um, not, not gar, not dead, not any of the other fours, but a just as, in the manner as, in the, in the same way as, for just as. And what happens here with kathos, number 2531, if you want to do a word study, not many people do word studies on conjunctions, but you know, knock yourself out. Uh, just as this link of the righteous thinking, we've got to point it back to what is the just as connected to? This links Paul's righteous thinking either to his persuasion in verse 6, his thanksgiving in verse 3, or possibly even the uh, fellowship participation from verse 5. And then these are, these are the linguistic debates that you go through when you're exegeting a text and you're finding a, a, a conjunction 
And you're asking, well, what's the antecedent? What does that link back to? And you look back to the nearest antecedent, and you look back to the closest logical antecedent that could connect it. And we really have two main options and really a third that some people uh, consider is also an option. I don't, I'm not overwhelmed by the verse 5 option. But, but my view, I, I take it all the way back to verse 3. I take it all the way back to the I thank my God, to the thanksgiving that's there. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And in the, the remembrance, in the thinking that took place there, it sparked the thanksgiving prayers. It was the thinking there that sparked everything that followed in 3, 4, 5, and 6. And then he builds on it with a just as to continue to describe that thinking. Just as it is righteous for me to, to think this way about you all. So he has a remembrance, he has a prayer, and then now he has ongoing thinking. Ongoing thinking related to the believers here in Philippi. And so whichever way I think it, it uh, however we want to handle the conjunction, I think will shape our understanding of, of what verse 7 is really dealing with. Is it connected to the confidence? And, and some people think it is. I am persuaded of this very thing. And so just as I am persuaded, in, in the same way, I am now thinking. Okay, That's valid grammatically. That's valid grammatically. And we want to ask ourselves then, well, then what's the implication of that? Because how was he persuaded? He was persuaded by the Holy Spirit working in his heart, the Holy Spirit convicting him, the Holy Spirit persuading him. This is where the Word of God becomes very subjectively applied. And so if we, if we link the, uh, the thinking from verse 7 to that persuasion in verse 6, we can do that grammatically, but then what follows? Then does he say, for in the same way then, it is righteous for me to think this way about you all. Meaning what? That the Holy Spirit is shaping my thinking? That the Holy Spirit is, is turning my, my thinking this way and, and that makes it righteous? Okay? And so those are some of the debates we go into as we try to explore this. And if that's the case, then we have to ask ourselves, well, how does the Holy Spirit do that? And what makes that righteous? And do we have other verses that speak to that? Or do we take all the way back to verse 3 and we see that it's all a part of the, the remembrance and it's all a part of the prayer that uh, comes there. So I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. In the same way then, just as the, my remembrance of you, just as now my thinking. You see what I'm saying? And so we can link that just as connecting the thinking from verse 7 either to the remembrance or the thinking in verse 3 or the... Uh, the persuasion of verse 6. I prefer to connect it to verse 3. All right? I prefer to, to because that, that I think it's, it's the simplest of the explanations. It requires the less uh, development. And I'm not sure I can prove the other one. I'm not sure I can prove the, uh, the mechanism of persuasion being identical to the mechanism of righteous thinking. But I can demonstrate the mechanism of righteous thinking to righteous prayers in verse 3 thanking my God and all my remembrance of you. That's very righteous. Of course that's righteous. It's righteous, it's just, it's appropriate, it's proper to have a remembrance of things and to offer God the thanksgiving. That's, that's normal. That's a no-brainer right there. I can 
I can preach that all day long. <laughs> all right. So, be that as it may. Now, among our greatest temporal blessings in Christ are righteous thinking, righteous judgment, which is, I think, the same as sound judgment. All right. Among our greatest temporal blessings in Christ are righteous thinking, righteous judgment, and sound judgment. What a, what a provision. What a grace provision that you and I have today. We have fallen bodies in a fallen world, but our thinking is shaped by the Word of God. And we are transformed in a powerful way. It's, it's, it's um, far beyond rubies, as Proverbs says. The Word of God, the wealth from the Word of God is far above any earthly wealth imaginable. Because the transformation of our thinking is not only in time, but it endures for all eternity. Righteous thinking, righteous judgment, and sound judgment. And these are the terms I, I like to connect here. Philippians 1.7 with John 7.24 with Romans 12.3. I think it all speaks to the same concept that you and I are living in the Word of God and as we learn, we're not just gaining information, right? It's not just gnosis. There aren't just facts in the Bible. You can do an awful lot of rote memorization of raw data and you can accumulate a ton of stuff, right? And, and does that edify? Does that change who you are? Just because you know a lot of facts, all right? But with the living and abiding Word of God, we receive it implanted and it dwells richly. And it shapes our thinking. It provides that righteous thinking. It provides righteous judgment. Because, because we're thinking in, in righteousness, we're able to judge in righteousness, okay? And we are expected to judge we should all be discerning. We should all be judge, uh, judge uh, well, we could say judgmental, but people will take that the wrong way, okay? And they'll wave their finger at us, and they'll get real snotty in their, in their, their voice expressions, okay? It's stunning to me how many unbelievers I encounter, and they all know Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged. And they want to they wanna wag, wag their finger at you as if that's, you know, in the verse, by the way, the verse says the opposite of what they think it says. Okay, when you read it in its context and you see the verses that follow, hold yourself to the same standard, which is the standard of the Word of God, and then judge appropriately. Judge with righteous judgment. So, anyway, here in, in Philippians one seven we have the uh, righteous thinking. In John seven twenty four we have the righteous judgment, which you should be familiar with. If not, we'll grab it here. John seven four. And um, 724, excuse me. <laughs> Here he is on the Feast of Trumpets on a day that should go better than it's going. Um, it's an amazing chapter anyway. This, this is now six months out from, from the cross. Okay, This is in the fall of 32 A.D. And the following spring, the following March and April is when he's going to be, uh, April 3rd is when he's going to die on the cross. And so this fall feast, the Feast of Trumpets, is, is a big deal in the Jewish calendar. And it's one particularly that centers on the coming kingdom. Because in the Millennial Kingdom, Feast of Trumpets is huge. Feast of Trumpets is when the king is seated on the throne and every Gentile king in the world has to come and bow before Jesus Christ. And, and once a year, every Gentile king has to come to Jerusalem and bow before Jesus Christ on the, on the throne of David. And so um, at the start of the chapter now, his uh, brothers, Jesus had brothers, right? 
unless you're Catholic and you, won't, you don't want to think that way, but if, uh, if, if you're not Catholic and you're okay with it, then the Bible says that Jesus had brothers and sisters, right? And, uh, and, and they, they had a lot of opinions about how he should run his ministry. And they were encouraging him to go up to Jerusalem. The, the Feast of Booths was near and his brothers in verse 3 said, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see your works which you were doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Notice that if you do these things, right? You know, they're not saved. They're not following. It says in verse 5, not even his brothers were believing in him. And so, um, you know, and isn't it interesting? They uh, were very scornful of Galilee, scornful of of, uh, their hometown, scornful of the small potatoes of, of, uh, you know, what they had going on. You need, you know, clearly ministry success means larger numbers, it means bigger crowds, it means worldwide fame, it means, you know, you got to go to the temple, you got to go to Jerusalem. And uh, so they had all these opinions. Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. And there's a whole doctrine there too related to believers versus unbelievers and, and different things. Um, anyway, he does he sends them on their own and then he goes up privately afterwards and not until halfway through the feast does he um, step forward publicly and and uh, start teaching. And that's the context for this. And so in this then they get they get shocked and, and the audience, they can't believe that this is him <laughs> and uh, a lot of uh, rumors are spreading. So in verse 14, when it was now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple, began to teach, and the Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? And I love that verse. And I think it defines what we do here at Austin Bible Church. Because um, we train men to be pastors, but we don't give out degrees. And, uh, and so in a lot of ways, these men that, that graduate, that get ordained, that go pastor churches... They, they're not educated by the world standards, and some people wouldn't even let them candidate in their church because of that. All right? Having never been educated. So Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And this is what it comes down to. If the Father has called you and you've been obedient to him in your training and preparation, then, then go teach his word. And so, um, well, they didn't like that. Uh, verse 19, he says, did... Uh, not Moses gave you the law, yet none of you carries out the law. You know how insulting that is? These Pharisees spent their whole lives keeping the law and very prideful of the fact they did it better than anybody else. And Jesus here says, none of you are doing it. None of you carry out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? <laughs> it, uh, it goes downhill from there. Uh, so, but notice, he doesn't back down. He keeps speaking the truth. And um, talks about circumcision, he talks about the law, talks about Sabbath. He goes, look at this, Moses gave you circumcision, and on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. So uh, what are you doing there? Are you breaking the, breaking the law? Are you keeping the Sabbath? Okay, see you got a problem. Any, any boy that's born on Friday, eight days later when it comes time to circumcise him, well, it's going to be a Saturday. Sorry about that. So the law says circumcise them on the eighth day. The law also says don't work on Saturday. Okay? So here's their conundrum. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And now they solved it. 
And, and he's using their own answers against them, and I love this. They solved it. You want to know how they solved it? It's not breaking the Sabbath if you're doing what God told you to do. So they can circumcise these boys on the eighth day. They're not breaking the Sabbath. They're not breaking the Sabbath because they're doing what God told them to do. And Jesus says, okay, thank you very much. I'm not breaking the Sabbath when I'm doing what God told me to do. See, he's the Lord of the Sabbath anyway, and he's, he's doing what his father sent him to do. And so he says, if a, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? He performed a miracle and you're mad at me? I'm serving God. Then he goes on, this is the conclusion. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And that's the command. And that's our blessing. We are able to do that. You and I can judge with righteous judgment because he's shaping our thinking. He's producing within us righteous thinking. And with righteous thinking, we're going to judge with righteous judgment. And so uh, that's your comeback, by the way, when that snotty unbeliever wags his finger and says, judge not, lest you be judged. And, well, I'm judging with righteous judgment. All right? And this is obedience to Christ Jesus. All right. In Romans 12, it's called sound judgment. And it's a different term. It's not dikaios, but I think it's clearly it's parallel. And, and I don't see any way to separate the idea of righteousness from soundness in uh, Romans chapter 12. And of course, verse 3 follows the admonition here from verses 1 and 2. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is us. This is our priesthood. This is what we're studying. This is why we're studying Hebrews. We're learning how to operate in our priesthood. We're learning how to present our bodies that living sacrifice. All those Old Testament sacrifices were dead sacrifices. You, you butchered the goat. You butchered the sheep. Dying sacrifices until Jesus Christ died once and for all. Now you and I get to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And uh, this is our spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Isn't that beautiful? The renewing of your mind. This is how we get transformed. Okay? Hollywood doesn't have a clue. <laughs> they make all these Transformer movies. And you, know, you can watch them all day long and you never learn this doctrine. Okay? It's the renewing of your mind through the Word of God. It transforms who you are, and it does so by shaping your thinking. Not by um, therapeutic uh, adjustments to your feelings. Okay, Feelings follow, but thinking is where God transforms our being. Um, so, the renewing of your mind that you may prove, demonstrate what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. All a part of our perfection process as a, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Then verse 3, 4. Okay? I meant to look this up if it's the same just as. But 4, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. So it's a compound of our thinking verb and it puts hyper in there, okay? You don't want to hyperthink. You don't want to overthink. 
but think so as to have sound judgment. And that's what happens. When your thinking is transformed, you will have that sound judgment. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And so we, we walk as we walk, day by day, moment by moment. We are faith allotments. <laughs> that's, that's what we are. We're faith allotments. And God working through us, and here we are. We're going to walk by faith and uh, as God has allotted. And it goes on. There's a whole chapter here that deals with that. But uh, sound judgment. It is it's really it's a term for um, sanity when it comes down to it. And the uh, medical terminology, Greeks would have different expressions, different ways to talk about crazy people, right? They were people that didn't have sound thinking. There was something wrong with their thinking. They were not whole in their thinking. Maybe they were divided in their thinking, okay? And that's why our phreneo vocabulary is so important. Phreneo is thinking, frame is mind. And the, the schizo on, the, on the, the division of the mind is not healthy. Okay, the whole aspect. And I realize they've done away with that now. The modern terms have totally done away. They don't call it schizophrenia anymore, but it is what it is. Okay, and uh, we recognize that. So, um, righteous thinking, righteous judgment, sound judgment, and all of that comes about through the Word of God. Okay, that's why we study to show ourselves approved. That's why we're diligent. That's why we want to live in the Word of God. This is, this is uh, not just a, a casual exposure. <laughs> it's not just glancing at it every now and then. You need to live in the Word of God. Be saturated by the Word of God. All right. Back to Philippians 1.7 then. This is the first of ten phreneo usages in the book of Philippians. Philippians has ten uses of this verb. We talked about it in the introduction weeks ago. We'll talk about it again this morning. It's a thinking book. It shapes our thinking. The verb phreneo speaks of um, uh, having a view of not just thinking, not in an endless process, okay? Not in an endless process where you're just thinking for thinking's sake, you know? I, I used to think that philosophers just sat around and thought, you know? Well, what an easy job, you know? You know, sign me up for that. I can collect a paycheck and tell you, yeah, I've been thinking about stuff. Uh, you know, but it's not just the activity of thinking. It's the process that has come to a conclusion so that you have thought it through. And now, because you've thought it through, you hold a view. You hold an, a, an attitude because of the thought process that brought you through it. Okay? And it doesn't mean... You know, that you'll never rethink it or you'll never go back through the process again. I think it's fruitful. I think it's useful in any endeavor. Just stop and check and say, wait a minute, why do I think that way? And go through the process again and reinforce, okay, that's why I think that way. And, uh, and then there you go. That's what we're talking about with phroneo, P-H-R-O-N-E-O, number 5426. 20 uh, is the strongest concordance number. With 26 New Testament uses, 10 of which are right here in this book. Got a concentrated usage right here in Philippians. Of all, of all the New Testament, for 10 of them to be in one book is extraordinary. Because there's only 16 of them in the other 26 New Testament books. Okay, so starting here in Philippians 1, the righteous thinking. It is only right for me to think this way about you all. Over to chapter 2. 
In some ways, uh, when people heard of we were going to teach Philippians, they were all excited because of this paragraph, <laughs> because of Philippians 2. And I don't blame you. Philippians 2 is, is wonderful. Either that or other people were excited about chapter 4 and uh, be anxious for nothing. And you know, we'll get to that too. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, favorite verses in Philippians. But this paragraph here, uh, if there is any encouragement in Christ, these are all true, there is, first class condition, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, okay, true, 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 four true statements. So given all that, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. And that's our phroneo verb. Have the same thinking. Maintaining the same love. Primarily, agape love is a thinking activity that will then carry as well some emotional um, side effects. <laughs> All right? United in spirit, intent on one purpose. Intent on one purpose. Okay? Oh, this is deep. I love this stuff. I wish more young people would grab onto this stuff. All right? You know, in, in, in the sense of, of defining agape love compared to other kinds of love. You know, how many marriages are all confused thinking it's all about the romance or it's all about the, the, the uh, emotions, okay? Start with the thinking. Start with the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Take it from there. And it's that thinking that will carry you through the, the seasons when the feelings aren't there, okay? That's the for better or for worse part. <laughs> all right. And so love never fails. Agape never fails. Even when the other stuff does. Agape does not. All right. So make my joy complete by being of the same mind. That's our term, phreneo. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit. Keep in mind, being of the same mind doesn't mean do what the pastor says. Doesn't mean agree with the pastor. Okay. That's a cult, not a church. Okay. We're not cults. My thinking is, is, is shaped into the image of Christ, same as your thinking is shaped in the image of Christ. And the more that I'm like-minded with Christ, the more you're like-minded with Christ, then together you and I will be like-minded. See how that works? goes on to say, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That destroys the whole endeavor of trying to be like-minded with Christ. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely look after your own personal interest, but also the interest of others. And then verse 5, think this way. Have this phreneo, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. See, thinking starts with the attitude. And we have to discuss that. We touched on it some with our eagerness study in Second Corinthians, but there's, there's more to do with the attitude. The attitude is like a precursor for thinking. With a good attitude, you can have positive thinking. With a bad attitude, it's going to reflect in some pretty gloomy thinking. So the attitudinal impact of this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Think this way. Think this way. And then he goes on to explain. Though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. We're supposed to think that way. We are seated at the right hand of God the Father, but we are thinking in the kenosis principle of Christ, emptying ourselves even as He emptied Himself. He laid aside His privileges. What is it we're not willing to lay aside? What is it we keep insisting upon? Well, I'm entitled to this. I deserve this. I deserve that. I shouldn't have to go through that. 
Who do they think they are? Well, stop. Who do I think I am? Okay? I'm a sinner saved by grace. I should be in the lake of fire. And if he emptied himself, what's my big deal? That's thinking from verse 2 and from verse 5. We get to chapter 3, we've got more thinking. Okay, more thinking in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 15 and verse 19. This is where Paul uh, is uh, telling us to forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. And uh, don't think that you've arrived. Don't think that, well, that's good enough. Don't be content with what you've achieved, ever. Just assume you've done nothing and, and reach forward to grab something before he calls you home. So Paul says, um, I don't think I've done it. Not that I've already obtained it or already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of for Christ Jesus. Don't ever think you've done it all or that you've done everything God has for you. Okay, Just assume I haven't laid hold of it yet. There's a purpose. I'm saved into good works, prepared beforehand that I should reach forward. I need to grab what it is He saved me for. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. Too often that gets preached as the bad stuff. You know, forget about all those drunken years. Forget about your carnality in college. Forget about, you know, stuff before you got saved. You know, you're saved now, so be happy and move forward. It's not what it says. The stuff is telling you to forget or the things that you might otherwise boast in things you did right, things you did in righteousness, things you did for the glory of Christ. Forget those things too. Forget those things and reach forward. Don't assume. See, don't grow content. We, 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 we plunge into that good enough thing. Well, I've done enough. Okay? You know, I've done more than the next guy. I'm, I'm all right. Then I uh, die the sinner to death because I became a slug in the Christian walk. So he says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many as are perfect, remember he's the, he's the, God's the one that's perfecting us, have this attitude, think this way, freneto like this. And if anything you have a different attitude, <laughs> oh praise God, hallelujah, God will reveal that also to you. Isn't that great? That's great, Okay. And this is not, this is, this isn't a sanctified sense. This is God and His faithfulness spotlighting areas in which your thinking needs improvement. Areas in which my thinking needs improvement. Okay? This is not a nag. This is not somebody critical. This is not someone that's beating you up all the time or, you know, seven days a week telling you how worthless you are. This is God in the process of renewing your thinking, letting you see some of that. And it's a beautiful thing. Thank Him for it. Absolutely thank Him for it. So God will also reveal that to you. Those are the two uses in, in verse 15. Think this way. And if you think a different way, God will reveal that also to you. And uh, honestly, that happens a lot through some discipline we have to go through. We end up enduring some discipline and we don't like it. But that's how God shows us. He says, yeah, you know what? That's the, that's the wrong thinking. <laughs> that's the wrong thinking playing out now in the discipline you're going through. And so it goes. Down to verse 19. Um, we have examples to follow. And this is great too. Verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. 
Not only does the Word of God shape our thinking, but we got brothers and sisters to live with. we got brothers and sisters in the congregation, and we're watching them grow up. We're watching their thinking get changed. They're watching my thinking get changed. We're watching one another. We're watching the pastor grow up. We're watching one another and all the thinking that gets shaped. And we're following after that example. For, For many walk, of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Make sure you're following the right example. There's also a counterexample out there. Don't follow that one. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly or their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who phroneo on earthly things. Who phroneo on earthly things. That's a clue right there. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're supposed to have our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. If we're all wrapped up in the earthly stuff and we're not considering the spiritual, what are we doing? For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of us are eager? How many of us are eager? I mean, how many of us are, I mean, we're happy to not be going to hell eventually, but, you know, we're happy that we're going to go to heaven eventually, but we'd rather it not be today or anytime soon because we're having fun. Okay? And this is like a fire insurance policy. You don't ever want to use it, but if you need it, you're, you're glad you got it. Okay? Same thing. Salvation becomes a fire insurance policy. You don't want to go to hell. So, yeah. After this fun is done, then yeah, then we can go to heaven and have more fun. But I want to have my fun here and now. No, our, and we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state in a conformity to the body of His glory. See, the rapture transforms our bodies. But we don't have to wait for the rapture. Our minds are already being transformed. Our thinking is already being transformed. We already positionally have that new nature right here, right now. And so don't wait for the rapture to start transforming your thinking. By then it's too late. By then you're going to go to heaven and receive an account for, um, or give an account and receive a recompense for the thinking transformation that did or did not happen here in time. All right, so there it is. And good rapture doctrine there, I can appreciate that. Eagerly waiting for a Savior. Talked to a man last weekend, didn't believe in the rapture, and it's just heartbreaking. So, well, <laughs> you know, is there anything I can say that will change your mind? No, not really. I say, well, I'll see you when we get there. <laughs> yeah, I'll be looking for you halfway up. Because in a twinkling of an eye, you know, we're going to be snatched up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and obviously I want to look to the Lord first. But then I think secondly, if I get a chance, I'm going to look around and try to find that guy. Because he's saved. I know for a fact he has eternal life. He loves Jesus. And he'll be there. Okay? All right. Uh, over to chapter 4, more thinking. More thinking. I urge Yodi and I urge Seneki to think together in the Lord. You know, living in harmony, okay? And uh, how often does this get preached? And it's easy to preach, I get it. You know, yet they're both female names, uh, so you got two women in the church, okay? And, and there's never been a church in the history of the church age that didn't have two women in the church that people thought about when the preacher was preaching on this verse, okay? <laughs> I'm saying, I'm just saying. So, I mean, it's easy to preach like that. Get along, okay? But it's bigger than just get along. All right. I can show you how to turn that noise off too, by the way. That's 
there's a program setting that blocks the uh, startup music. Best Bible software in the world. All right. Um, I urge Yodi and I urge Seneca to live in harmony, to think together. Think together in the Lord. And it's a thinking imperative. Chapter 10, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, the final two uses here. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. The word for concern there is for now. You were thinking about me. If you're concerned about somebody, you're thinking about them, right? If, if you're not thinking about them, are you really concerned? Man, I hadn't thought about them in years, okay? Thinking, it's a, it's a thinking activity. So now at last, you have revived your thinking on my behalf. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. They wanted to support him, they just couldn't. We, we don't know what it was. Something happened to Philippi and their, their missionary budget plummeted. We, we, we get that, it happens. But now at last, not only do they continue praying, they continue thinking, they continue to be concerned, and now they've got, they've got a missionary fund again. Now they can dispatch Epaphroditus to go carry some, uh, some uh, grace to the Apostle Paul. That's why we have the book of Philippians in our Bible. So, thinking. Paul's thinking is righteous thinking, and this is among our greatest temporal blessings in Christ. Then what's this thing about the heart? Paul holds the Philippians in his heart, in his cardia, K-A-R-D-I-A, cardia. The Greek word cardia. 256 New Testament uses. All right, so there's one you can do a word study on. There's one that you'll spend a lot of time reading about the heart throughout the whole New Testament. And cardia, um, fortunately or unfortunately, is where we get um, cardiac, where we get cardiology, where we get uh, you know, cardiograms and all everything in the in the your heart doctor uses these 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 words, um, and so uh, you know we learned a lot of them just the past week because that was the congestive heart failure that God chose to use to to take Ted to heaven, but cardia okay. And the problem is though, in the Bible in the New Testament, cardia has nothing to do with the chest organ that pumps blood. Okay, cardia in ancient Greek, cardia in in the anthropology of, of the New Testament centers on the invisible, centers on the inner man, it centers on the core of your being. And I like, I like using the, the word core, I use core a lot, because it speaks of the innermost, it speaks of the center, okay? There's, there, there are also idioms about the, the heart of the earth, for example. Jesus descended into the heart of the earth when he was buried, okay? And that's the heart of the earth is the idiom there for the cardia of the of the earth. Okay, you have a heart, and uh, in, in, in we all do in the in our innermost being. That's what it is. When the outer man perishes, the inner man is renewed day by day. We're to be transformed in the inner man, in the innermost of your being. And so, when we talk about the soul and the spirit, sometimes soul and spirit are used interchangeably. Sometimes soul and spirit are largely synonymous and interchangeable. But other times they're not synonymous and interchangeable. Other times they are very distinct. And if, if you're dealing with a passage that is making that kind of point with that kind of precision, then uh, we need to accept that for what it is. All right? 
And it's the same in Greek, it's the same in Hebrew when we're talking about the, uh, the, the nefesh or when we're talking about the ruch or we're talking about the lev. Uh, the Hebrew vocabulary uses the same, uh, c- conveys the same senses that the Greek vocabulary conveys. So don't think that the Bible was shaped by Greek philosophy. Because in the Hebrew terminology, which preceded all those philosophers, um, the, the same aspect was there. We have an inner man. There is the real you, and it's not your body. Okay? And so we have different aspects there that we want to... Let's see if I fixed my clicker the other day. The, uh, I was going to bring... Ha! Huh, fix my clicker. All right, close that. Skip that. Exit that. All right. Um, I was going to draw it out the other day. The, the inner man, right? And, and you know I'm such a great artist. But I use a circle to represent this. This is the soul-spirit. I put a line between soul and spirit. This is the inner man. This is us. We're trichotomous in the sense that we have body, soul, and, and human spirit. All right? Now, for the uh, unbeliever, of course, this human spirit is dead. That human spirit is dead. And we get that. And when we're made alive, what happens? It's quickened. It is made alive, okay? Now, there are some that believe it doesn't exist at all. They just totally say, nope, we're just body and soul. And then he creates something new at the moment of our salvation. And they defend that as a view. I believe it's already existent. It's already created. It's already procreated as a part of the the human that's procreated is body, soul, and spirit. But it's procreated with a dead spirit because it's a dead, it's it's a, it's a, a fallen human that that uh, has procreated. Anyway, this comes alive when we're saved. This has always been alive. The soul has always been alive, always will be alive. The, the worst unbeliever ever walked this earth, his soul is, still exists. Okay? The soul leaves the body. It's either going to be carried to heaven or it's going to be carried to hell. It's the way it works. Now, that soul spirit, now like I say, sometimes they're used interchangeably and that's no big deal. Sometimes an author is just going to talk about body and soul and it's, all he's doing is a contrast between the inner and the outer, the visible and the invisible. That's fine. He could have said body, soul, and spirit if he wanted to. didn't, you know, that's fine. And so sometimes soul and spirit are loose. Interchange. But in many places it can't. Hebrews 4.12, they cannot be interchangeable because there is a dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow to that uh, innermost being. And so I, I put it kind of in the middle here Bill Kelly drew this in a day and he used a valentine shape. That's terrible. Alright, so this core, this here is the heart. This is the cardia. The heart. It's so the innermost part of your being. And everyone has one. Believers have a heart. Unbelievers have a heart. In fact, Jeremiah tells us the condition of that unbeliever's heart, it's, it's a wreck. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? All right, and and what's what's fascinating is is uh, when we get saved, what happens to that heart? Anything happened to your body when you got saved? Not a thing. Anything happened to your soul when you got saved? Not a thing. Nothing happened to your heart either. Okay, except now that you are saved, now that you have a living human spirit, now the word of God can start to flow through that living human spirit into your heart. Thy word have I hid in my heart, David says. And so the word of God starts coming in through your living Holy Spirit. Without a living Holy Spirit, you can't take in the word of God. The word of God must be apprehended spiritually. The soul cannot apprehend the word of God. 
No unbeliever, I don't care how smart that unbeliever is, with a mentality for days, some very genius level mentalities cannot apprehend the Word of God because it's spiritual truth. It must be spiritually apprehended. And so through the, the God the Holy Spirit communicates to our human spirit and through the human spirit then the Word of God can be hidden, can be treasured, can be guarded, can be placed in the heart. And I trust that's what we're doing here today. I hope it is. The, uh, the aspect there. All right. So this is what we talk about. Now not only can the Word of God be placed there, what else can be placed there? Well, Paul said he put the whole Philippian church there. <laughs> okay? You could put people in your heart. You could put events in your heart. Mary treasured these things in her heart, we're told, when Jesus was at the temple at the age of 12. And there's other events as well at the baptism or at the uh, temple when they took the baby to be baptized or uh, circumcised. And they, uh, the, the prophet uh, Simeon was there and Anna the prophetess was there treasuring these things in their hearts. What does that mean? Okay, Hiding the word in the heart. People, events, circumstances, testing. There are testings that you can internalize, take it to heart. We've got similar idioms in English, don't we? Okay, Internalize these, embrace these at the core of who you are because these are the things that God uses to shape us. These are the things that God will use. First and foremost, of course, the Word of God. So that's the, uh, the diagram there. All right. So Paul holds the Philippians in his heart as fellow fellowship participators. I wanted to double the fellow on that, so I did. Fellow fellowship, okay? Because fellowship never happens by itself. You notice that? Okay? Hermits have no peer pressure, right? It's just fellowship requires fellow fellowshippers. And, and the Greek uses the compound here. It puts soon, it puts the soon prefix in front of koinonos, in front of the fellowship. See? And it's kind of unnecessary, but the fact that it's being used really drives the point home. It really intensifies what's happening there. You, you would think that koinoneo doesn't need a soon prefix. Because that kind of goes without saying. And yet we put a soon prefix, S-U-N, right? Like synchronized, sympathy, all of the soon terms that we have in the Greek um, speak of togetherness, okay? Speaks of togetherness. We want to have our fellowship together. Meaning, I want to have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. And if you're having fellowship with God the Father and God the Son, then guess what? You and I can have fellowship one with another. We can soon, we can synchronize our koinonia. We can synchronize our fellowship. But that's the only way we can synchronize our fellowship. That's, that's key. So, uh, as fellow fellowship participators, the, the noun here is soon koinonas. Number 4791 is the strongest number with four New Testament uses. Koinos and koinonas, those are much more common. Koinoneo, much more common. Um, but to, to stick that soon prefix on the front of it only happens four times, doesn't happen very much at all. And they are fellow participators in grace. Fellow participators in grace. 
And, uh, and that's, that's beautiful every time that happens. And um, it, it, it happens in ways we expect. It happens in ways we don't expect. Uh, sometimes it happens in sorrow. Sometimes it happens in sadness. It happens in testing. It happens, that's why we call it dying grace. And, you know, uh, how, how do you experience dying grace? Well, someone you love has to die. And you go through that. But it's, it's God's dying grace. And so you become a fellowship participator in the grace of God. He extends it to you. You extend it to others. You fellowship in the grace of God. This is not, uh, you know, you, the world has a, a sad imitation of this. And it's a couple of drunks sitting around a bar uh, commiserating in their, commiserating in their, in their whatever. Okay? And they commiserate partaking in their beverages and everything else, okay? We, soon koinonia, in the grace of God. And whatever it is, a health test, a, a physical death, a marriage test, a, a loss of employment, a, I mean, it could be any number of things. And we can not commiserate, we can fellowship in the grace of God. And I can testify that in weakness there is strength. In testing there is grace. In conflict, there is glory for Jesus Christ. And I'm going to testify to that, you know, all day, every day. And you can testify to that based on your circumstances, based on your testing. And so together, as we fellowship in this grace, that, that builds something. That builds an esprit de corps. That builds a fellowship. That builds, you do that enough, and that person's going to be in your heart. Okay? That's how that's going to work. And you can't help but do it. Come to prayer meeting sometime. Come to prayer meeting. How many prayer meetings did I pray with Gary Williams and he was pouring out his soul for his daughter? And again and again and again and again. I felt like Janine was my own daughter because I was praying with him over his daughter. See? And so placing the Word of God in your heart, placing fellow believers in your heart, placing ministry experiences within the core of our being it is an act of humility and it is an act of blessing. It enables us to put the other first, to consider them as more important than ourselves. Okay? Because we're not the only ones in our heart. We're not all alone in our selfishness. So we'll uh, deal with these verses Wednesday night. Lord willing and rapture pending. I'm out of time. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the Word of God that comes alive. And I pray that we would be humble before it, that you would open the eyes of our understanding. I thank you for the living human spirit that can receive truth as your Holy Spirit administers it. Let us receive it by faith, with humility, to receive that Word implanted. It's able to save the soul, Father. Um, pray that it does so. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.